Open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 68 for an opening text of Scripture. Psalm 68. The Lord helping me, I'd like in this Lord's Day and the next Lord's Day to preach to you about the prophets of God. We want to look at the character of those men that God has chosen to be the preachers of the gospel. We want to see them under both covenants. We want to see their character, their spirit, their preparation, their protection, their ordination, their profit, the blessing that they bring, their necess- the necessity of the spirit in their lives. We want to look at the men themselves more than the ministry itself. I've preached many, many years ago a series of messages about the ministry, but I want to for us to study the prophets themselves and to look at them as to how we should pray for them, how we should view them, and the kind of men that God puts in that office of pastor and teacher and bishop of the New Testament. I appreciated in the prayer that was just offered up that I was referred to as Brother Jonathan. That is my preferred way of description. I am your pastor, I am your bishop, I am your teacher, but I don't want to be called Teacher Crosby, I don't want to be called Pastor Crosby, I don't want to be called Bishop Crosby. The reason for that is because those are all titles, and while I have the office, I don't need the title. I don't need to be addressed differently than the rest of you because I'm just your brother. The example that we have in the Bible is the Apostle Peter talking about Paul in 2 Peter 3.15, and there Peter writes, our brother Paul. Right. He doesn't say, the great and distinguished and most holy and reverend Paul. <laughs> he says, our brother Paul. With the great, You'd be amazed at what titles go down today for those in the ministry. They call themselves R.E.V., I don't know if that means revised, since they're all using revised versions. I think it means reverend, that they want to be reverenced, that there's some sort of reverend. But when I look in the Bible, I believe it's Psalm 111 and verse 10, it says that holy and reverend is his name. If you want to say reverend God, I'd be happy to pray with you. But don't call me anything like that because there's nothing reverend about me. I have a reverend office and I have a reverend book before me, but I'm not reverend. I want to be called Brother Jonathan. If you want to teach your children respect, then they can call me Brother Crosby. I don't need titles. Do you know what I want? Instead of flattering titles, I want the understanding of Elihu. In Job chapter 32, Elihu said in the last two verses, I don't dare give flattering titles to men. Because if I were to do so, my maker would soon take me away. I would rather have Elihu's inspiration in which he could tell those four old men to shut up and sit down and I will teach you wisdom. He said, old men are not always wise, but there is a spirit. And God gives understanding. Amen. I want the understanding rather than the titles. And I read of our Savior in Matthew chapter 23, the first few verses, where Jesus said, when you meet a minister 
in the marketplace, you're not to address him as rabbi or master or father. And yet there are entire denominations that expect all of their ministers to be addressed as father so-and-so. I may be your father in certain respects. The Apostle Paul was the father of the Corinthians. He says so. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15, he says, Though ye have many, uh, 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you only have one Father, because I have begotten you through the gospel. So Paul claimed to be their spiritual father in the sense of being the first one to preach them the gospel. But I can guarantee you one thing. When Paul walked into the room, he wasn't addressed as Father Paul. Do you understand the difference? One is a flattering title, and the purpose is to separate men in public, the clergy from the laity, and there should be no difference because we are all the same thing. And Do you know what we are? Sinners saved by grace. I'm your brother. You're my brethren. In fact, if there's any title that a minister ought to be given, it ought to be servant. And that's what we read of so many times in the New Testament, the servant of the church which was at Sencria sometimes applied to women who weren't even in an office, but it's because they worked for that church, a servant. Jesus said, those that want to be great in the kingdom of heaven should humble themselves and be the best servants. All of that was very germane to what we're covering. God's ministers are not put into some elevated stratus of rabbi, or master, or teacher, or father. They're servants of churches. It is their purpose to labor in the word of God and to give you spiritual things while you labor in the world and give in return to them carnal things. And the exchange is to the profit of the churches of Jesus Christ and their laborers. I want to preach to you about the prophets of God. We have an ordination coming up in two weeks. I want your souls excited about this event. I want you to be in prayer for it. I want you to be building in a crescendo of enthusiasm for September 9th. I want you to know what is taking place. I want you to understand its blessing upon us. I want you to see the Lord's hand. I want you to understand why our brother is being ordained. I want you to see in his person the marks of those prophets of God that have gone before him. While I use, I'm using the word prophet in this study very loosely because we don't believe in prophets any longer. We believe that the office of prophet went away with the completed scriptures arriving in the first century after our Lord Jesus Christ. Because 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that the prophets of the New Testament only had partial gifts and they were to be done away with when the complete and perfect gift of prophecy came, and that was the written word of God. Amen. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12, teaches us that plainly, that prophecies shall cease and shall go away. And it's not that all prophecies would go away, but the partial gift of prophecies that men had would go away. So that apostles no longer exist, prophets no longer exist, and true Bible evangelists no longer exist. Today we have pastors and teachers, also called bishops, and we have deacons. And those are the two offices in the churches of Jesus Christ, bishop and deacon. The prophets of God. I want you praying for our brother. I want you praying for the ordination. I want you praying for the church that by the grace of God he's going to serve. 
I want you to pray for the Spirit of God to come and anoint Him and bless Him and make Him great. And I want you to understand what the true prophets of God have looked like for the thousands of years that God has sent them for His people. And it's a great blessing to have one. We're going to go into this ordination fasting because the Bible shows us to fast. We're going to come out of it celebrating because the Bible is going to show us that we ought to celebrate when we have beautiful feet coming to preach to us the gospel of peace and to show us glad tidings of good things. You know, the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 10, and let me just read these words to you. He said that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we believe those words and we understand them. But he goes on to say, how then shall they call in him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. There's the order. There is no gospel salvation and conversion without God's ministers. Cornelius was lost until he met Peter. And so it is with all saints. God may save them and truly does with an everlasting salvation, but their understanding and their knowledge comes by the way of men. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe until they hear? How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach except there be ordinations? They be sent, which is all an ordination is. It's the public and formal appointment and sending of a man to a work in an office of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to do when we ordain. Now, those of you that are truly saved by the power of Jesus Christ and that are enlightened by his spirit, and you've been taught by the good word of God, you know the importance of what we're going to do in two weeks. Psalm 68. Look at verse 11. With me first. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. What a wonderful text. Some of you can probably hear the Messiah ringing in your ears. If you've listened to it a few times, the Lord gave the word. Remember, there's an organ chord, and then there is the Lord gave the word. Great was the company of the preachers, because preachers are the ones that publish the word of God. And that's Psalm 68 and verse 11. And under both covenants, the Lord gave the word. The Lord gave his word on Mount Sinai, and there were many prophets that took that word and that law to the people of Israel and warned them. There were prophets and sons of prophets that taught the people. And yet, for the most part, they rebelled. And then in the New Testament, there have been so many that have preached the gospel of peace, according to the prophecy here in Psalm 68 and verse 11. But the best text of the chapter is in verse 18, where it says, Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. That is our text, brethren. That's a verse that I don't want you to forget. The Apostle Paul tells us exactly how we should interpret that verse and apply it in Ephesians chapter 4 when he applies it to the New Testament ministry. This is a prophecy 
of what would happen after Jesus Christ rose up to God's right hand. God gave him gifts for his glorious work of redemption. He took those gifts and gave them to men that the Lord God might dwell among those men. And some of those men were rebellious and didn't want the gift and didn't want the blessing, but God gave it anyway. And God used those men to be his preachers and to be his prophets. I've preached to you five sermons recently on the mysteries of the hidden wisdom of God. And I brought those to a conclusion, and it was the Lord's timing. When I went into my study on the mysteries of God, I wasn't thinking about an ordination. I went into them because God opened my eyes to see just what a great blessing we have in our understanding of the truth. And how many times in the Bible the word hidden and secret and mystery and revelation was actually used. But as I worked through it, I realized and saw by the grace of God through His Word how that the men who carry those mysteries to us are indeed blessed men, and to have one is a blessing. And so I brought it to a conclusion with 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1, where the Apostle Paul says, Let a man so account of us. Paul says, Here is how you ought to consider us apostles. Here's how you ought to consider ministers of the gospel. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And that just elevated the ministry. And if you think about preaching being the revelation of secrets that God has revealed, it elevates preaching. And if you think about our assemblies, and I've taught you this in those five sermons, it elevates our assemblies. It elevates the reading of God's Word. Because in God's Holy Scriptures, we have His secrets revealed to us. And so it elevates everything by considering that the knowledge and the wisdom and the information contained in God's Word has been kept secret from most men and kept secret from His saints in most generations. We are blessed abundantly. And so we come to the ministry. I love that text. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And we're going to ordain a man to be a steward of the mysteries of God. He will dispense the mysteries of God to God's people. May the Lord be praised. What a blessing. What a great event. What a great thing. And I hope that you're thankful for it. I want you to remember Psalm 68 and verse 18. Thou hast ascended on high. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, without a doubt, because Paul tells us that. Thou hast led captivity captive. Jesus Christ destroyed what held us all captive, death and sin. He led it captive. He destroyed it. He controlled it. He put it away. He buried it. And he will cause death and hell to to deliver up the dead that are in them one great day. And he'll cast the whole thing into the lake of fire and we shall live forevermore. He has led captivity captive. Those that were held captive of the strong man, he has delivered them. Jesus Christ did. And his work was so great that God gave him gifts. That's why in Psalm 68 and verse 18 we read, Thou hast received gifts for men. Paul, when he explains this verse in Ephesians 4, says he gave gifts to men. You say, well, that looks like a contradiction. Oh, no. Jesus received them from God the Father and gave them to men. He did both. 
And by putting them both together, we have greater understanding than if he had simply, by the Holy Spirit, quoted the words. Right. He opens the words up to us by showing that God dispensed his spirit and the gifts of the spirit to Jesus Christ. Remember Acts 2? Jesus is now at the right hand of God and hath received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost. And he's now pouring it out. Jesus was the intermediator. He is the mediator. He received the gifts from the Father and he gave them to us. And that's what it tells us when it says, Thou hast received gifts for men. It says, Yea, for the rebellious also. Not all the men were so willing. Some of them were rebellious. And we'll look at some of them as we look at the prophets of God. They didn't really want to be a prophet of God. You can think of Jonah real quickly, can't you? The word of God comes to Jonah that he's to go to Nineveh. What city does he go to? Tarshish. He wants to go in the other direction. Now that's a rebellious prophet. But the Lord God sent his spirit and his gifts upon such men, and they were used. Was the city of Nineveh saved? Yes, it was. Did we take a circuitous route to get there? Yes, we did. Did we take a smelly route to get there? Yes, we did. But we got the prophet there eventually with the gift. And the Lord blessed his ministry. So that city repented like hardly a city has ever repented in the history of the world. And then that prophet sat on a hillside and wanted to watch the city burn up. But God still used them. And I hope you'll never forget that. Some prophets of God may have some pretty ornery spirits. And you know the whole story about the book of Jonah, about that gourd that grew up and God sent a worm to kill the gourd and the gourd died and so the sun was beating on Jonah's poor head and he was getting hot and sweat was running off his forehead and he said, I wish I was dead. And he was so upset about that gourd. And the Lord says, how in the world? Can you be upset about a stupid gourd and a worm that killed it when there's 120,000 children in that city that don't know their left hand from their right hand? You say, what a man. Yeah, that's why it says, yea, for the rebellious also. Right. I love Psalm 68, 18. Amen. Brethren, I, I don't believe in the, we don't need to be all that formal here in preaching to you. I read this past week a Baptist pastor of 400 years ago that wrote about this text. His name was John Bunyan. And he described his conflict with sin and his temptation. And sometimes he would be so overwhelmed by his own guilt and grief of his sinfulness that the only comfort he could get was Psalm 68:18 that he ought to go back the next Sunday and preach because he would lay in a coma, a spiritual coma of total destruction, knowing he was such a sinner and he would look into this text and those words, yea, for the rebellious also would raise him up off the couch. And brethren, he would go preach the gospel one more week because he knew that he was included in Psalm 68, 18. Isn't that comforting for God's Amen. ministers? Yeah. I want you to love that little phrase that's in that verse, that the Lord God might dwell among them. Jesus Christ received spiritual gifts to give to men that would be in a close union with God, that God would be among them, in them, with them, by his word, and by His Spirit, indwelling them, using them, going with them, instructing them, leading them, that the Lord God would dwell among them. And God has some prophets that the Lord dwells among, and it's to our blessing and our profit. If it weren't for the prophets of God that have come to us, brethren, 
If it weren't for the prophets of God that God has sent to us, those faithful men that he raised up for us, we would hardly know anything. What would keep us from being Mormons if it weren't for the faithful prophets that God has sent us? What would keep us from being Catholics? What would keep us from being Campbellites or the Church of Christ, the followers of Alexander and Thomas Campbell? Why wouldn't we be Lutherans, the follower of Martin Luther? Why wouldn't we be Charismatics if it weren't for the faithful prophets that God has sent to teach us the truth? Was it luck? Was it chance that we heard the truth by the faithful men God sent us? It wasn't luck and it wasn't chance. It was the sovereign blessing of God upon faithful men, some of which we know very personally, who lost because they would not compromise the truth. Some we only can read about who lost because they would not compromise the truth. But they were faithful, and God was merciful. And by the combination, we heard the truth. Because if it were not for that, we could be a benighted, ignorant worshiper in the Catholic Church. Or in some other church. Or severely limited in our understanding, if it wasn't for the grace of God and the prophets that He has sent us. As we go into this study, forget all you have seen heard, or thought about what you believe a minister ought to be like. What do you know about ministers? What do I know about ministers apart from the Word of God? Forget every minister you've ever seen. Forget everyone you've ever heard. Forget every thought you've ever had about what a good pastor is. Forget them. Let us let the Word of God be our light and be our guide, and it alone. The world's whole image... And the image that the Catholic Church has tried to create, who is the mother of abominations, and it has infected Baptist churches as well, is a so-called pulpit manner and a so-called effeminate type of man who is a godly pastor. It's a false impression. And we want to just blow everything out of our minds so that we simply go to the Word of God and are content to rest on Scripture alone as to what a prophet of God should look like. Amen. Act like. And be like. Amen. It is so difficult. I have used this example before. I know Brother Jeff has remembered it several times to me. If I say to you, the Virgin Mary, you all have a picture in your head. And it's very difficult for you to undo that picture of Mary to a true picture of a mother with a whole lot of children running around, sweating, engaged in normal relations with her husband, not always walking around with a halo over her head, and her hands clasped like this, looking like the most utterly helpless, weakless, lazy person that's ever existed. That wasn't Mary. But when I say the words Mary, an image immediately jumps into your head because of the false teaching and pictures that you have had in Bible story books and in pictures and other places that has created an image. And when it comes to pastors, I want you to blow that out of your head. Any idea of some refined, elegant, educated, kind, gentle, tender man that you may have liked as a pastor that you had at some point, well, I'm glad you had a friend that might have been a pastor. But we want to look at the prophets of God 
as to how what the kind of men God ordained and how they acted so that we properly pray for the ministry and we respect the ministry regardless of the men that are in it. Because we see that they're men like the ones that God has called in ages past that are recorded for us in the Bible. You know, when a Catholic is converted, you have so much work to do to expunge from his memory and his mind the things that he's seen and done in the Catholic Church that are wrong. When an Arminian is converted, there are so many verses that he cannot read without the first impression leaping off the page at him that election is conditional, that God looked down from heaven and did see who was going to believe him, and those are the ones he gave eternal life to because of the repetition of false teaching. And I'm asking you to get rid of that this morning so that we can study what God's Word has to say. Don't say this study can't profit you. It won't if you're not saved. If you're a saved child of God, this study can profit you because it'll teach you how to pray. For the man we're going to ordain, it'll teach you how to pray for the man who's your pastor. It'll teach you how to measure the man of God by the Word of God and to be thankful. It'll tell you what your responsibilities are towards your pastor. It'll tell you men some of the character traits that you're going to want to be to be like a man of God in your own homes. There's lots of profit for those of you that will gird up the loins of your minds and listen. Right. I'm going to use generalizations in this study. We always use generalizations. You can't speak intelligently without them. We're going to use generalizations that when I make a general statement about the men of God that the Bible shows us, that doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions, but I want to remind you the reason they are exceptions is because the general rule is exactly what I'm telling you and showing you from the Word of God. I hope that the ordination in two weeks will not be my last, so I'm also preaching to any others here that might have a soul that God has prepared or is preparing or will prepare to be one of his prophets. May the Lord bless us as we consider the prophets of God. Let us look at the persons that God chooses to be his prophets. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a passage we've been to recently as we were studying the mysteries of the hidden wisdom of God. And we'll go to it again because it speaks to us also about his ministers. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Amen. God chooses the foolish and the weak and the base and the despised things of the world to bring to nothing the things that think they're something. Amen. And so when you meet a man that looks like something, he's probably not called to be one of God's prophets. When you meet a man that doesn't look like much, but you can see some of the characteristics of God's word upon him, that could be a prophet of God. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. The seminary approach is to choose the cream of the crop, those that have the sweetest disposition, those that have the smoothest elocution in the pulpit, those that have the gentlest manner at the bedside. 
and so on and so forth. Those that have the leadership ability to keep 40 different programs going at once. Those that have the charisma to raise the money to finance the 40 different programs. And so they're looking for the wise and the noble and the gifted. And yet God has chosen the foolish and the weak and the base and those things that are despised to be his people and to be his ministers. If you say this passage is speaking of the saints, I'll say yes. But where do God's ministers come from? The saints. And so let's turn to Luke chapter 10 to confirm that what I'm saying is the truth. Luke chapter 10. And Lord, I'm trusting you to bless us by your spirit. That as we look at your word, we'll all be strengthened and we'll be brought to complete and proper understanding of your prophets and your ministers and the brother that sits before me and any others that are in this assembly might be stirred up in their minds. Luke chapter 10 and verse 17, the 70 returned again with joy. Those 70 were preachers that the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned. And we read these verses a few weeks ago when I preached to you about the book of life. The 70 returned again with joy in Luke 10, 17, and they said, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. And I read that long passage there to point out to you the timing of the statement of Jesus Christ when he lifted up his eyes and he thanked his Father in heaven for having hid these things from the wise and prudent, it was when he was considering the joy of 70 preachers. He looked at them. He heard their joy. He saw their excitement. He told them that he had given them power to tread over all the power of the enemy. But then he said, Father, I thank you for the ones that you've chosen to be my ambassadors. Look at those pitiful men. Father, you've hid these things from the wise and prudent and you've revealed them to babes. You didn't dip into the cream of the ministerial class, O Lord. You just rejected all those Pharisees, doctors, lawyers, and theologians to pick, to choose, base, foolish, weak fishermen to be your apostles. And Jesus Christ blessed the Father for it. I want you to see the persons of the prophets of God, the type of men that God chooses. Intelligence, education, graciousness, and refinement are not common traits at all. And I'm going to prove everything I say with the Word of God. Otherwise, it's going to sound like I'm painting myself into a perfect little corner. 
I must not be very gracious. Intelligence, education, graciousness, and refinement are not common traits to God's ministers. They're not the noble. They're not the wise. They're the weak and the foolish, the base and the despised among men. Should their speech be always with grace, that is what they're commissioned to be like, and that is what they teach others to be like. But the kind of persons that God puts in there, by nature, are weak and foolish and base and despised. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Let's look at the persons that God has chosen to be His prophets. And again, I'll remind you that I'm using the word prophet in a loose way to describe all of His messengers and ministers. I'm not referring to that specific office of the New Testament and the Old called prophet. I'm using prophet in the sense of simply someone who reveals the the will and the Word of God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, Now, brethren, what in the world is Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee when it's time for him to have 12 foundation stones of the New Testament church selected? Why isn't he in the halls of the world's most unusual university? Or why isn't he in in Harvard, in the halls of Harvard or Princeton or Yale? Why isn't he in some divinity school? Why isn't he asking Gamaliel if he could see the resumes of the graduating class of the school of Gamaliel. Why isn't he there? We've already seen it in Luke chapter 10. That God the Father has chosen the foolish to show them the truth because he has determined to humble all those that are wise and prudent and hide the things of the gospel from them. But I read... Then in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 18, that Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, studying in the Word of God. And I do this to keep you awake and to keep you thinking with me. I do not do it to be foolish. Whenever I do anything like that, because I want you looking at the Word of God. It's one of my teaching techniques to make you sure that you understand exactly what that verse is saying and to pull its words out to us so that we get its value. What he saw were not two men studying the Word of God. They did not have a pile of scrolls there, and Andrew and Peter were going through them diligently. He found them casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, from that motion of casting a net into the sea, how would you determine that a man ought to be a prophet of God? Jesus Christ made them prophets of God. God the Father prepared them, and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit enabled them and trained them and proved them and made them apostles. But notice where they were found. Fishing. If you want to find an uneducated man, a man ignorant of what's going on in the world, then go down to a dock and find a man who's been out to sea for the last 40 years. Will you think about it for a moment? He's been out to sea. You say, well, he could have email. Peter and Andrew didn't have email. And they didn't have the Internet. Just think about a fisherman. Very ignorant. Their profession is very isolated. 
very unique. Jesus found them and called them and, and said, I'll make you fishers of men. Verse 20, and they straightway left their nets and followed him. There's some preparation of the Holy Ghost. And verse 21, going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. What do you get from watching a man mend nets? And he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. And there are the four most well-known disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not incredible? Will you please think with me about the prophets of God, about the men that God has chosen to reveal the hidden and secret wisdom and mysteries of the universe declared by the great God. He chooses fishermen. These are the most well-known of the twelve. Look at Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. What do we want to do to compare Matthew to some present-day position? He was collecting tolls in a toll booth. Is that fair enough? Jesus Christ comes down the turnpike, comes to the toll booth, and there's a man in there collecting the quarters. Now that's a deep job. That's a man who's well prepared for the ministry. And I speak as a fool. The world would laugh at such an idea. And Jesus says, follow me. Right. And he makes him one of his apostles. And do we have a gospel written by that man that God used as the channel by which we have the gospel of Matthew? Right. 28 chapters that we love and read and we're reading right now, inspired by the Holy Ghost, by a man who was collecting quarters at a toll booth. Amen. I like the way God does things. Amen. He gets all the glory, doesn't he? Amen. When four fishermen and a toll collector turn the world upside down, something must be working with them. Someone must be working with them, and it's the great God. And the Bible says so that the power is of God and not of men and that no flesh can glory in his presence. Would they be able to ever glory in the presence of other men? Every time they opened their mouths, they knew, and the other men knew, and they knew the other men knew that they were uneducated men. Look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 to remind us of that true fact, that when these men opened their mouths, they proved to hearers that they were unlearned, uneducated, and not only that, they hadn't picked up anything at home school either. They were ignorant men. Did you know that the New Testament tells us about doctors? It tells us about lawyers, scribes, priests, Levites. But where are the theologians and the politicians and the orators when it comes to Jesus Christ calling his twelve? Isn't it amazing? He bypassed all of them other than a couple of exceptions. The general rule is he just passes by. And he chooses fishermen and a toll collector. Acts chapter 4. Here's two of those fishermen. Verse 13. They've just been called in question by the rulers and elders and scribes of the Jews, according to verse 5, and they're giving their answer. And verse 13 tells us how that answer was received. Now when they, and that they is the leadership of the Jews, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived 
that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Brethren, give me a man that's been with Jesus Christ and loves Jesus Christ and loves the salvation that is in Jesus Christ above anything else that could be acquired. Above any degree, education, elocution, eloquence, or ability in a pulpit or intelligence. Give me a man that knows Jesus Christ. And that's what the apostles were. They perceived that these men had been with Jesus and had learned of him. But in the world's wisdom, they were still ignorant and unlearned. Their formation of sentences with dangling modifiers and other travesties were so prevalent that all you had to do was hear them speak for a little while and you knew they were unlearned and ignorant men. And they truly were because they were fishermen. They had not been trained like these men all their lives sitting at the feet of men like Gamaliel learning the ropes. They didn't know them. All they did is they could stand and say, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now that may, to me, those are the prettiest words in the English language. But I'm telling you to others, they were perceived as unlearned and ignorant men. But they had been with Jesus Christ. And any man that can stand up when there's a whole nation that has the power of life and death and ask them what in the world they're doing preaching in the name of a man that they crucified for being an imposter and a blasphemer, when they stand up and say in verse 12, Well, no, i got to get 10, 11, and 12. Look at what they said. Be it known unto you all. See, they even said y'all. Be it known unto y'all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Amen. Do you see? That's why it says in verse 13, when they saw the boldness, because God made them bold. They were fishermen, and one of them may have denied Jesus Christ 50 days earlier, but he wasn't doing any denying now because he was filled with the Holy Ghost. And he spoke in the name of Jesus Christ, and he said, there is no salvation in any other name than in his name. And if you're not saved by him, you're not saved. And this is the stone which the Old Testament prophesied about that was set at naught of you builders. This is the prophesied Messiah of God. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Just threw it in their faces. But what did they throw in their faces? Education? Eloquence? No. The Lord Jesus Christ and salvation by him alone. May he be praised. When I look into the qualifications given, look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. When you're filling out your application into seminary to be considered an advanced student for the ministry, these are not the questions they ask you. They want to know about your grade point average. They want to know about the courses you took in two dead languages. Three, if they include Latin. They want to know questions like that. But look what God wants me to look for when I'm looking to find a prophet of God. I look into 1 Timothy chapter 3. He must be the husband of one wife. 
You know, there can't be a polygamist in the ministers of, among the ministers of God. I look down through that list and I see vigilant. Now today they don't want someone that's vigilant. They want a visionary. I read a great article that my brother pulled out of the paper about the fastest growing church. I don't know if it's Brookwood Community Church or the World Redemption Outreach Center. I get confused. They're both growing fast. In three years, this church went from 400 to 4,000 over there on Birdland Drive behind the downtown airport. And he's an apostle. Happy, And 60% of the members are black, even though he's a white apostle. And so when you do that, you've got everybody racially happy. You can build a big church. And when you make fun of everybody who makes money, calling them the big shots, you can get all the poor to come because they want to be there so they can feel good while they're in a service like that. There was a huge article about them. But the reason I'm mentioning all of this is when you join that church and people think we're tough. People look at the covenant that we did, and it's, so, it's based in the Word of God, and they think that, you know, this is almost like a dictatorship. Amen. What a joke. In the Greenville News, on several pages, with pictures, a huge article, to join that church, you have to sign a covenant. And the covenant says that you will never say anything negative about apostles Ron and Hope. Now, that sounds pretty severe to me. And he was asked about that, why they had to sign a statement and agree to a covenant not to say anything negative about apostles Ron and Hope. And he said, this church is growing at the speed of light. I don't have time to deal with things like that. I'm a visionary. That's why I said, they want visionaries. What they mean by visionary is someone that can imagine 66 programs to build a great big operation. But the Bible says that we want to look for a man that's vigilant. Amen. And we want a man that's vigilant because he's like a hound dog when it comes to false doctrine. Amen. He sniffs it out and he hates it and he wants to chase that rabbit down and club it to death. Right. Now that's good prophet language. <laughs> vigilant. You don't see that on an application into a seminary. I come down further, and it says, not greedy of filthy lucre. Well, they couldn't put that on most applications because most men today are building great, big, money-driven enterprises. You cannot tell me when you turn on your religious channel and see those men there begging for your money and offering to sell you a $2 trinket for your $100 gift to God. God needs you to send your money in, and we'll send you. We want to sell you this trinket for a hundred dollars and you see it and you know it cost them two bucks they're money driven they're money begging but the bible says not given to filthy lucre it says one that ruleth well his own house what's characteristic today for most ministers what is the common understood character of a pk a pk is a preacher's kid or from St. Louis, we could say a priest. Well, they don't have kids, do they? <laughs> Preacher kids. It's a common expression. A PK. I was a PK. I was a typical PK at some times in my life. PKs. But note, look what the Bible says about a minister's family. It says, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. 
For if a man know not the three dead languages, how shall he take care of the church of God? No, it says if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And brethren, I'm not trying to entertain you. I'm trying to educate you and instruct you. I want you to think, if I was to bring you an application to one of the seminaries of our nation and you saw the things that they want to know, about your scores on the SAT and other tests, and your grade point average, and the professors that you have sat under, that's what they're looking for. But then I look into here, he can't be a novice. Well, guess what? Everyone is in seminary. Without exception, they're novices. They're boys that have never had any job. Because when they finish playing basketball and taking gym class in the 12th grade, they went to Bible college. After Bible college, studying three dead languages and playing basketball again, they then went to seminary. And they're novices. They don't have a wife, they haven't had children, and they're not grounded yet in the faith. And the Bible says they have to be grounded and established and mature in the faith because you can't put a man that's a novice into the work. And they go through seminary. They still haven't worked a day in their lives. And all of a sudden, they're ordained and put in a church. That's how it's done. He must have a good report of them that are without. He's never been without. He's always been within. In the schools. He's never been without. I went to a company in this city a few weeks ago, a couple months ago. And interviewed a man's boss. And that man's bosses, and that man's boss, to find out about the man that's sitting in this assembly that's going to be ordained. Because I wanted to make sure he had a good report of them that are without. I said, Are you sure? I said, What about this situation? What about this kind of a situation? What about this? Are you sure? Can you think of anything? I'm no hero. All I'm trying to, I'm just a scared preacher wanting to please God. And it says that he must have a good report of them that are without. And he had a good report of them that are without. Isn't that exciting? They were blown away. They'd never seen anything like this in their life. They wanted to see my FBI badge, (laughs) CIA or whatever else I was coming in there, wanting to ask all these questions. But after after they got comfortable that maybe I was sincere, maybe I was sane, Then I found out that both of them were Baptists. Both of them held offices in their church. And I can tell you one thing, it hadn't been done for them. And they just wanted to sit there and talk. One of them just kept on going. He just, he he saw what was happening and what I was trying to do. Isn't that great? What's great is the testimony that I heard, the good report of them that are without. Brethren, I am not trying to be funny this morning because what I have is not funny at all. It's very, very serious. But there has been a great decline in the prophets of God from the kind of men that God wants because there's very few of them left. And so they have filled the churches of this country with pretenders that God never called. But they have a degree and they have an ordination certificate, but God never called them. They may be polished, they may be refined, and they may be very polite when they're sitting beside your bed and you've got four hoses running into you, but that isn't what God called ministers to do. Right. God called all of us to do that. 
when we're in that bed in the hospital and there's hoses running into us, every single one of us is supposed to be there and take care one for another. Amen. The last man that should have to be there is the man who's supposed to be in the Word of God in prayer. He'll be there, but he's not. Do you know what most ministers spend their time doing? The church that I just told you about, the World Redemption Outreach Center, in the same article it said, he's an apostle. They said they're the only church in Greenville that has that have all the offices of the New Testament. Apostle, prophet, and prophetess, evangelist, pastors, and teachers, and they have 44 pastors. They have 44 pastors, and all they do is funerals, weddings, and go to the hospital so that the big cog, the big dog, can be the visionary. This is what he said. We have 44 pastors, and they do all the things like go to the hospital and have the funerals and the weddings so that I can be a visionary. What God said that a man's supposed to be doing, even as an apostle, was to give himself wholly to the word of God and prayer. That's why deacons were ordained in Acts chapter 6. God's qualifications do not look like the qualifications that the world looks for in a minister. When they meet a man, they want to see how good he looks, how well he speaks, how polite and refined he is, how humble he appears. Brethren, humility is not identified by the weak need, effeminate, droopy hand approach that is so common in the world. That is not humility. Humility is show the man he's wrong by the word of God and have him say, I am wrong, I will change it immediately. Because I fear God and I want to obey him. Amen. That is humility. Amen. Humility is Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. I will look to a man that is poor of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. Amen. It has nothing to do with walking around with your head hanging down. If you're a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, what in the world is your head hanging down for? If you've got the word of God inspired and preserved in your language, what's your head hanging down for? If you have something to say on behalf of your maker, as Elihu sure did, what do you go around with your head hanging down for? Was Elihu a proud and arrogant man for telling four windbags to shut up and sit down so that he could speak to them the truth? Nope. Go read it. He was not proud and he wasn't arrogant. He had the truth and he was tired of hearing God accused of false doing. He wanted to correct the situation. He wanted to exalt God, lift him up, and put those four men where they belonged. That is not pride and arrogancy. Pride and arrogancy is when you show a man the word of God and he won't change. That's pride. That is pride. Whose ideas he his own ideas he values higher than the word of God. We're looking at the persons that God puts into the ministry. Look at Psalm 78. Psalm 78. I could go through every one of those qualifications back there in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 and show you what God is looking for in the character of men. It's very different from the image that we get in our heads. And that's why I started out this morning in my introduction asking for you to blow out of your memory all that you've seen, heard, or thought about what, a, what the ideal image is of a minister. Get rid of it. Let the Word of God tell us about these men. Psalm 78 and verse 70. Here's, here's God choosing one of his prophets. Psalm 78, 70. He chose David also his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes great with young, 
he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. David was a great prophet of God. David gave prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a man after God's own heart. But notice where God found him. He wasn't fishing and he wasn't mending nets. He was at the sheepfold following the ewes, great with young. He was following pregnant sheep around, waiting to help them deliver little lambs. And God called him to be his prophet. Do you remember when Jesse went to Bethlehem to anoint him to be king of Israel? Jesse brought out seven sons. Because Samuel had asked for the sons of Jesse, and Jesse brought out seven of them, presuming that it couldn't have been David. And Samuel worked down through all seven, and from a man's opinion, we ought to go to that passage. Because we ought to see it. 1 Samuel chapter 16, because men want to look on the outward appearance, and the Lord looks on the inward. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6, is the first verse I want to read from 1 Samuel 16. And it came to pass when they were come, that is the sons of Jesse, and he looked on Eliab, the firstborn, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. And this was something pretty good to look at. And so he worked his way through the seven in verse 11. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, and with all of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And he was anointed. But I want you to notice the emphasis there. He was keeping the sheep, the father. The father and the brothers saw nothing in him desirable to be the one. But the Lord did, because he looked on the inward parts. We're looking at the persons of the prophets of God. David was an obscure shepherd, and the Lord chose him to be the shepherd over his people Israel, a great nation, and he was a great prophet and king. Look at the book of Amos with me. The prophet Amos. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Amos chapter 1 and verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, and the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. The words I want you to notice in Amos 1, 1, the words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa. No school of divinity here. No seminary degrees here. He was among the herdmen. What did the Egyptians think of herdmen? Despise them. Because it's such an ignorant trade compared to building pyramids. Do you understand? Keeping sheep compared to building pyramids was despised. 
But notice what Amos was, and here we have a book in the Bible written with the title over it, Amos. Do you want to hear what he says about himself? Look at chapter 7 and verses 14 and 15 when he is railed on by Amaziah, one of God's priests. Amos 7, 14. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto my people Israel. There's his call to the ministry. There's his ordination by God. He said, You're picking on me. I didn't choose this office. I was out taking care of sheep. I was a herdman. And I was a gatherer of sycamore fruit. Now how glorious does that sound? A gatherer of sycamore fruit. But the Lord appeared to me and he said, Go. So I went. These are the men that God calls to be his prophets. Where was Moses when God called him to be his prophet? The backside of the desert. Can a desert have a front side? I guess it must, but Moses wasn't on the front side of it. The side that faced Egypt, the side that was easily, you could easily travel into Egypt, he was on the back side of it. How long was he back there? 40 years. What did he do for a living back there? Write great works in isolation where he could have his mind free from all the activities in Egypt so that he could write? He tended the sheep of his rich father who put him through the best schools, his father-in-law, Jethro the Midianite. That's where Moses was for 40 years. You say, but Moses was also learned in all the Egyptian of the wisdom, in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. That's true. That sure didn't help him in the ministry. Right. And he'd forgotten a lot of it with 40 years in the wilderness. But notice where God called him. He's on the back side where the only thing that the Lord can use to appear to him as is a burning bush. That's the backside of the desert. And that's where God called him. I want you to notice where the great man Mo Moses came from. The backside of the desert. And when a man thinks that he's been in a particular job too long or he's been wondering what the Lord's ever going to do with him, if the Lord's ever going to do anything with him, we can never forget about Moses. Right. Moses thought that at the age of 40 he was going to deliver Israel and he tried it in his own way. Mm -hmm. And the Lord had 40 more years for him. And that 40 years out there was the Lord's seminary. Amen. And the Lord does better in his seminary than men do in theirs. Amen. Right. He was out there tending sheep and learning the patience of God. And did he have patience? He bore with that nation for 40 more years and carried them like a father carries his nursing child. The Apostle Paul went to a similar school, didn't he? What school did the Apostle Paul go to? And who was the chief professor? The Lord Jesus Christ in the deserts of Arabia for three years. Galatians chapter 1. Give me a man who's been with Jesus Christ. Did Moses know anything of Christ through his relationship with God? Yes, he did. He esteemed the riches of Christ, that the, the affliction of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt, Amen. according to Hebrews chapter 11, because he'd been taught by God. Did Moses want the job? 
When God said out of the burning bush, I want you to go back and lead my people out of Egypt, did Moses want it? Was he one of the rebellious? Yes, he was. Did God get angry with him and say, I've made your mouth and you can talk, but since you want to give that as an excuse, I'll prepare your brother Aaron. He can be your mouthpiece for you and he'll do the talking, but you're going. Now that's pretty rebellious, wouldn't you say, when you've got a bush that's burning there and you've just had a few encounters with leprosy and snakes and you still don't want to go? Is that pretty rebellious? Amen. That's pretty rebellious. But that's the man that God used. We've just, we've, I've already mentioned Jonah in this sermon. Look at Jeremiah chapter 1 and let's see his zeal for the office. Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah 1, 4. Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God! There is an exclamation point there. Ah, Lord God! Behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Amen and amen. That's how ordinations take place, and that's how Jeremiah was ordained, kicking and screaming as he went. But the Lord called him and had sanctified him from his mother's womb, put his hand on his mouth and gave him the ministry, a horrible ministry. Oh, the book of Jeremiah is horrible. But God called him to it and God enabled him for it. And we're able to look into that book and realize that here was a man faithful to a call, even though no one wanted to believe him. We'll have much more to say on this, brethren. This morning I wanted to introduce this subject and for you to consider the great thing that we're doing. God's called a man to a work. I want you to see the persons of God's prophets and what they're like for you to appreciate the one that sits in your midst that is going to be called forth to the work that God has prepared for him. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.